You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Doc G, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. Today, we welcome Janice Torres-Rodriguez of Yo Quiero Dinero. I had never meant to be an entrepreneur. I had trained to be a doctor, after all. My job was to help people, to make diagnoses, to administer medication, I never in a million years thought I would be interested in dollars and cents in making money, but I was. It quickly became clear to me early on in my career that practicing medicine the way I dreamed of required owning my own practice. And owning my own practice meant becoming an entrepreneur, an accidental entrepreneur, a role I would stumble into over and over again with my practice, side hustles, hobbies, and eventually not only medicine, but also personal finance. It's a role I've grown to love. Yo Quiero Dinero founder Janice Torres Rodriguez is a Latina thought leader and sought after speaker and content creator in the personal finance space. Her podcast, Yo Quiero Dinero, is a nationally acclaimed, award-winning personal finance podcast that is listened to in over 130 countries. She became an accidental entrepreneur after a job loss led her to create a successful Latin food blog, Delish Delights. Now she's on a mission to educate marginalized communities on topics like entrepreneurship, investing, and building generational wealth through her personal finance podcast, Yo Quiero Dinero. Janice, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let's talk about that first job of yours. Did you hate it? (laughs) I think it's safe to say that I was very disillusioned with corporate America from the beginning. I started working at the age of 22, graduated with a degree in molecular biology with a minor in chemistry. And my initial plan was actually to become a doctor. But my junior year of college, I decided I'm done with school. I'm done with getting into debt. I don't want to do this anymore. And so I thought to myself, what can I do with this science degree? Because everyone told me you can't really do much with a bachelor's degree in science unless you're planning on doing something else. But fortunately for me, I had some connections in the pharmaceutical industry. And so I got my first job out of school as a process engineer in a biotech company. And it was, you know, the I would say it was a short-lived moment of success, if you will, because I had started getting paid like $40,000 a year, which is the most money I'd ever seen in my life. But I quickly realized that the nine to five grind, the corporate structure, and the fact that I was typically the only woman of color in spaces I was in was just not in an environment where I was going to thrive. Talk about corporate America in general. 
Did you like what specifically you were doing? So you're describing an environment that didn't fit you. You're looking around. People don't look like you. Did you like the work itself? The work was interesting. So I was working in cancer therapeutics and specifically monoclonal antibodies. So these are therapies that are used to treat all kinds of illnesses. The company that I worked for specialized in cancer. So the mission was, you know, really noble. And I appreciated the fact that I felt like the work that I was doing was having real impact on people's lives. But it's hard to actually see the impact on the day-to-day basis, especially if you're familiar with like the drug creation process. It can take 10, 15, 20 years. And most of us are not working on that project from start to finish. So you don't actually get to experience the end result of the work that you do. So tell us about getting fired. It sounds like you are already having misgivings about this job, but was the decision made for you? Yeah. So I hopped around a little bit between when I graduated and started my first career. And it was about six years into my career that I was pretty much, you know, done mentally. And I think it started to show up in the way that I was, you know, presenting myself at work. I I really was just not motivated. I was just, you know, coming in, clocking in, doing the bare minimum. And I don't know, I thought there was some level of security in my career because, you know, the STEM field is like, there's always going to be a job. But I knew in my heart that it wasn't where I needed to be. And I would literally walk into work every day, sending signs to the universe like I need I need to go. I need a break. I don't want to do this anymore. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in manifestation. And so the universe decided to reward my plea with a layoff. And it was the first and only time I was ever laid off. The initial shock, obviously, it's just like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I'm the primary breadwinner in my household. We're going to end up on the street. I'm going to live in a cardboard box. Like all those things start showing up. But when I actually sat down and thought about it, it was the exact break I needed to really think about what am I going to do now? Because now I have options. Now I'm not being forced into showing up every day because I have a commitment. Now I have this time to really hone in on what I want to do with my life. I imagine there's that moment of panic, which you were talking about when you find out, okay, a paycheck's not going to be coming in. You were doing something on the side at that time. Am I correct that you had already started a blog? Yes. So about six months before I got laid off, I started a food blog. And again, it was really an exercise in frustration with my corporate career. I felt like that was the only thing that I had as an identity. And I was really seeking something else. I started thinking about what are those things I love to do? And being in the kitchen is something that I've done since I was 11 years old. That's the place where I would go to decompress, to be creative, to spend time with my loved ones. Food is such a centric part of you know most families and especially in Latino families, that's like the heart of the home is the kitchen. And so it always just felt like a naturally safe place for me to be. And I started thinking about Am I going to restart my career? Am I going to go to culinary school? What can I actually do with this? And when I discovered the world of blogging and folks who were using their passion for food and combining it with technology and creating what was essentially living recipe books, which is what a blog is, I honed in on a couple of different things. I knew that I wanted a location independent side hustle. I knew I wanted it to be around food. And I knew that I didn't want to be an influencer, you know, going out on social media, doing a bunch of videos. I wanted a side hustle that was going to let my introverted personality still be able to create something. And so blogging was the natural fit. Was there any imposter syndrome? Because I remember there were multiple times in my career as a physician where I had some success as a writer or a public speaker. 
And the internal dialogue and narrative I told myself is those are things you do on the side or as for fun, but you could never make a living. You sound like you just jumped in. I mean, was there any worry that this is not something that could actually sustain you? Absolutely. I never actually planned to make this a business. It was more than anything. It was like a mental health practice of just having something to do outside of work that felt mine, that felt like I could be my most fully expressed self and leaning into an identity that I typically just couldn't, you know, be my full self at work. And so the money, the the monetization aspect of things came later when I realized that folks were actually turning what people think is a hobby, you know, for most of us, it can be, they were turning it into businesses. So I ended up taking during my period of unemployment, I took a course at a local culinary school. And I met a blogger who had quit her job, turned her love for food into a business. And that was the first time that I started making a connection between, you know, taking what you're passionate about and monetizing it. And so from there, I realized, you know, if I continue to hone in on what I don't know, learning things like SEO, learning things like affiliate marketing and, you know, how to get your traffic out there and how to differentiate yourself from the crowd. That's when things really started to take off. And, you know, there have been starts and stops in my journey. So I have taken time off from the blog when I just felt like, you know, my mental health wasn't the best or I was reprioritizing different things in my life. But it's always been something that I've been pulled back to, even when the imposter syndrome shows up. You call yourself an accidental entrepreneur. Can you remember the moment where it clicked and you said, oh, I can actually support myself doing this? Was was there a moment that that happened? Yeah, I think back to 2017 when I filed my taxes and I realized I had made an extra $10,000 with my blog. That was the first time that I had made, you know, a five-figure amount with something that was not a corporate job. And so that was the first inkling that this is real. You know, like I have to pay taxes on this money now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're paying the government, it's real. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely real and it's grown exponentially since then. So it, it's when you start really knowing your numbers, right? And I think that's like such an important part of just personal finance conversations in general. I needed to know what was actually happening income-wise in my business for me to see what was possible. And so, you know, doing things like starting to track where my income was coming from, using an accounting software, talking to a CPA, like all of those things gave me the permission, if you will, or just the, it gave me an inkling into what was actually possible. You and I were in the personal finance community. I figure we're in the money business, right? You started in Delish Delights. How did that transition into personal finance and digital entrepreneurship in general? Yeah. So around 2017, I had just turned 30. I was doing a lot of the things that folks say, you know, you should do as as an adult, like buying a home. I started making six figures in my engineering career. And I continued to find that as I went down this quote unquote list of things that responsible adults do, I felt more and more disconnected. I felt more and more like I was living someone else's version of my life. And (laughs) I always tell folks, I literally went on Google and searched, like, how do you restart your life? And lo and behold, when you search those terms, you start finding out about the financial independence movement. And so (laughs) that was how I first began to learn more about the personal finance space. It was 
specifically through the financial independence movement. And I realized I had created this tool with my blog that would allow me potentially to achieve financial independence. Because a lot of what folks do in the movement is, you know, they start side hustles, they increase their income, they start investing more heavily, they start reducing their expenses, foregoing the things that most people say, you know, you should do with your money. And that led me down a rabbit hole of just really wanting to understand how I could tie my desire for entrepreneurship into this desire that I had of overall being able to design my life in a way that was going to let me escape the corporate rat race. So that's how the whole thing started. You, at a very young age, started asking a lot of questions that took, took me much longer. What is my identity? What is my purpose? What is my passion? You decided to pursue your passion when it came to supporting yourself economically Is there a problem with that? I mean, it seems like there's this great debate about whether passion and work should go hand in hand or not necessarily. And it sounds like you went kind of for the passion play to start with. Is that usually the right choice? Well, I always tell folks, if you wouldn't do something for money, or I always tell folks, if you wouldn't do something for free, you probably shouldn't do it for money. Because the thing is, a lot of folks will go on the internet, they want to start a side hustle, they're just going to search for like, what's the thing that I can make the most money with? But that's not actually going to be sustainable. And I know that for a fact, because I thought that pursuing that six figure career was going to be the thing that was going to give me satisfaction and was going to give my life meaning and purpose. And it didn't. There's no amount of money that you could pay me to do something that I don't want to do, that I don't enjoy, especially when we're talking about how much of our actual lives we spend working. I mean, I think you have to have something other than the paycheck and the material success and the titles and you know, it's just not enough for me. That might be sort of like the inner rebel in me, the inner dreamer that's always just you know, seeing the the glass half full, but I really do think we have way too limited of a resource in time on this planet for us to just accept that work is going to be the thing that we don't have to enjoy. It's the majority of what we do in our lives. It's interesting because while you were answering that question, you talked a little bit about enough. And I've noticed that you use the term financial freedom as part of your content. I see it on your blog page, et cetera. Talk to me about what enough and financial freedom mean to you. So I think when it comes to introducing the concept of financial independence, especially to my community, which this is still a very novel concept, this idea of like investing your way to millions so that you can retire in your 30s or 40s. Like most of us have a hard time grasping what that actually looks like. And so I like to introduce the idea that if you can find a way to pay your bills on a monthly basis consistently, that's financial freedom. If you need $8,000 a month to sustain yourself, pay all your bills, so that's the goal. It's not getting to the $2 million mark. It's not getting to you know a, a ton of investments. It's how can you c- cash flow your way to financial independence? That's what I teach folks how to do because I think that number is way more realistic than this lofty you know, multi-million dollar goal that a lot of us see as the only way to financial independence and financial freedom. Is online business and online entrepreneurship the best way to get there? I think it has the lowest barrier to entry. When you think about, you know, ways that you can cash flow your existence, you can have multiple income streams, which typically, you know, thanks to the power of the internet, now you can do things at a low cost. So I tell folks as a blogger, 
I was a very much of a, a bootstrap entrepreneur. I spent maybe $100 that first year launching my blog. A couple years in, I bought a camera that was refurbished for a couple hundred dollars. My hosting plan, even to this day, where I'm now making six figures as a blogger, costs me $1,100 a year. So this idea that we need to be spending tens of thousands of dollars on an online business is not actually accurate. It's going to grow as much as you want to invest in it. But there's also ways to enter entrepreneurship at a low cost. Now, the other flip side of you know what I see folks doing to pursue financial independence or freedom is real estate. Real estate is a very expensive endeavor. If you don't have a ton of cash to get started, if you don't have folks who are willing to gift you down payments, it's just so much harder for, for folks from marginalized communities where our access to capital is very limited. So I do think that online entrepreneurship is one of the lowest barriers to entry into diversifying your income, providing yourself with more financial stability, and giving yourself some room to create without this pressure of like having a ton of money that you need to get started. Denise, do you think we make it sound too easy? I'm thinking of both of us, in a sense, identifying with this idea of accidental entrepreneurship. It almost makes it feel like it kind of just fell into our lap. But I worry about this idea of survivorship bias. Like there's those of us who are kind of loud and proud and you hear about us but we might be one in a hundred who made it. Is there such thing with side hustles? I mean, are they as plausible as we make them sound in this community? I think it's important to show the good and the bad side of entrepreneurship and this idea that not everything that you create is going to be the winning ticket. And so I like to be really transparent with my audience. It took me two years to monetize my blog. So this idea that like you're going to start a blog, you're going to start writing, and two weeks later, you're going to go viral and you're going to have people throwing money at you, it's just not realistic. What I have found is that there's not enough of that part of the story that's being told of how long it actually takes when things have gone wrong. I tell folks I started a travel blog and I had no money to travel. So that didn't go anywhere, <laughs> right? <laughs> I started a, a drop shipping store and the only person who bought something was my mom. And I think it's honestly because she felt bad for me. So this idea that you have to have some sort of guarantee of success before you even get started is going to paralyze you from actually starting. And I think the beauty of entrepreneurship, if we really think about it, is it's us reverting back to our childhood and our natural curiosity as humans and just giving ourselves permission to see what we can create without the expectation of financial success. Because whether you work in a corporate setting or you have a business, there has to be a greater purpose if it's going to be something that's sustainable. So getting to the why behind why you want to start a business is way more important than worrying about like, is this going to be successful right away? It's funny you say that because it was always one of my qualms with business school. It's you go to business school because you want to learn how to make money. I mean, that's what kind of they teach you. And I never quite understood the motivation for working as hard as it takes to have a successful business just doesn't exist if the main purpose is to make money, right? Absolutely. Yeah, there has to be more. And you cannot make up for you know, enthusiasm with, without consistency. Consistency is what's going to get you through those periods that things don't feel great. And you are starting to doubt yourself and people are calling you crazy. And everybody's like, why are you doing this? Just go be normal. Go get a job. You know, the, the 
I feel like you almost have to have like a radical self-belief at some points when nothing makes sense, but that why is what is going to keep you going when everything else just is called into question. You say radical self-belief, and that's exactly what I think of when I listen to your story, only because I feel like you got to this point where you lost your job. And I think most of us would have freaked out and taken the next possible job offered to us to just bring in money. But it occurs to me that you must have had some of that radical self-belief to actually slow down and do that introspective work. I don't know if that's something everyone knows how to do. (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely a learned skill. So don't think that, you know, you're born out of the womb with confidence and you're just going to kick ass and follow your dreams whenever life throws a curveball at you. I've had therapy. I worked with coaches. I feel like crap sometimes, and I give myself permission to do that. One thing that I have found that has been the biggest game changer is finding a community of folks who are also in this endeavor, especially if you come from a marginalized community, it's important for you to find mentors who you connect with and who have accomplished the things that you aspire to accomplish. There is so much power in representation and having a sounding board and having a group of people who are cheering you on because sometimes you're going to be your own worst critic. And so when I feel myself going into that spiral of like, why am I doing this? This doesn't matter. I know exactly who I need to call to get a pep talk and, and keep going. And it's okay. Like this, this journey into entrepreneurship is as much of a, you know, endeavor to create a business and create income and create impact as it is accepting that you are signing up for a lifelong journey of challenging your limiting beliefs of introspection and of really giving yourself permission to stay out of your comfort zone as much as possible. (laughs) I want to talk about two of those limiting beliefs because I think when people think about the hurdles of side hustles, I hear two things. One is time. Like I have to work my nine to five job. There is no way I have time or energy to put towards a side hustle. And then the other is money. You need to have money to make money. Tell me how those are limiting beliefs. I think they're limiting beliefs because there's always a way for us to carve out something that we need in order to make our dreams come true, but it takes some intentionality. So I know for me, you know, I, I have to acknowledge my privileges in the sense I am married. So I have a partner who can help me at home. I don't have children. So that is not, you know, that that's a thing that takes up a lot of time, especially if you are both working parents or if you're a single parent. There are a lot of privileges that I have to acknowledge that have allowed me to have the space and capacity to create businesses. But at the same time, if you want to make something happen, I feel like fundamentally it's possible. So when we're talking about time, There are ways to buy back your time if you use a resource that you already have, like money. If you already have a nine to five job, you have some income that you can potentially decide to divert into time saving activities. When I was balancing my business and my nine to five, one of the first things I started thinking about was like, what can I do at home to take some stuff off of my plate? Maybe I don't want to cook five days a week. Maybe we can get meal delivery a couple of times a week. I don't want to do laundry all weekend. So maybe I can go down to the local laundromat. They offer a wash and fold service. They can take some hours away from me having to do that. Little things like that can start to optimize 
your time so that you can buy back an hour here, an hour there, and you can dedicate that to the things that you want to do. On top of that, when it comes to money, I think the best time to start a business is when you already have a stable investor. Your angel investor is your nine to five paycheck. And so deciding that one of your goals is going to be to set aside funds to start your business, it's the same way that you would set aside money to take a vacation or to buy a new home. Make the business a goal of yours and then start allocating whatever resources you can to get there. You've mentioned some of the privileges that you've experienced that have helped you kind of get where you are. Do you think the internet, in a sense, has democratized entrepreneurship? Has it erased maybe some of the need of some of those privileges? I think it has, especially when we think about the power that the internet gives us in reaching audiences all over the world. When I think back to what entrepreneurship was originally in my mind, the people that I saw working the hardest in my community were the entrepreneurs. They were the local bodega owners or the nail techs or people with the beauty salon or the taxi drivers. And so that for me never appealed to me because I I still associated it with like, you have to show up for every single dollar that you want to earn, right? And that's why so many folks are questioning whether the nine to five life is for them too, because they realize, you know, most of our jobs require that unless you're lucky enough to work in in a remote setting. So I think when it comes to the internet, the biggest power is your ability to reach folks who are all over the world. So you're not limited to your local neighborhood, your local community to market your services. And there are a lot of free ways to market yourself, right? With social media, with starting a podcast, with a blog, there are a lot of low cost and free ways to market yourself in a way that like 20 years ago, we couldn't even think about where you had to know people at a TV network to put ads on TV, or you had to take out a billboard, or you had to put stuff in a magazine. There has been a lot more access, I think, for folks to get their voice out. And now it's just, you know, how do you differentiate yourself and how do you find those skills that are in demand and start monetizing them? We are talking to Yokiro Dinero founder Janice Torres Rodriguez. She is a Latin thought leader and sought after speaker and content creator in the personal finance space. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use. 
quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. As rising interest rates, inflation, and global complexity throw the stock market into turmoil, savvy investors are turning to alternative investments. Our crowd makes it easy for you to diversify your investments into a variety of expertly vetted high-growth private companies across stages, geography, and industries like biotech and renewable energy. Investments like these used to be reserved for elite institutional investors. Every month, our crowd vets hundreds of startups across the globe, then brings you a select few identified for their outsized growth potential. Our crowd backs these investments, they commit their own capital, and they leverage their relationship with multinational corporations and global investment leaders to help drive their portfolio companies' growth. Discover investment options beyond the stock market. Join the fastest-growing venture capital investment community in the world at rcrowd.com slash EAI. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Janice Torres Rodriguez. She is the creator of the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast. She's on a mission to educate marginalized communities on topics like entrepreneurship, investing, and building generational wealth. Janice, let's talk about different communities. How is this journey different for Latinx people and people of color when we're talking about digital entrepreneurship? I think the biggest obstacle that I see folks having to tackle is this belief that we are capable or even worthy of being in the space. And I think a lot of that has to do with the lack of representation about what entrepreneurship looks like in our communities in general. So when I think about entrepreneurs, and I say this with air quotes, I think of folks like Jennifer Lopez, right? Or like Cardi B. I think of people who are entertainers, who are musicians, who are actors, but who are like the Elon Musks or the Warren Buffetts of our community, right? There's no representation as to what normal wealth looks like in our community, what a normal entrepreneur looks like, somebody who's not, you know, who doesn't have 10 million followers on on social media. And so I think folks need to see what is possible by seeing more examples of people who look like us who are doing this. And that's why I'm so vocal about introducing other entrepreneurs who are people of color through my podcast, because that's the first time that a lot of people encounter folks who are black and brown, who are pursuing financial independence, who are starting businesses, who are investing and and representation we know matters. And I think folks are really eager to have someone who they can relate to give them advice about how this whole process works. Another thing too is, again, the myths around the capital that's required to start a business. There's a lot of perception that you need to already come from money to start a business or that, you know, no one, that there's too much market saturation and that there's no way you can possibly stand out. And I like to tell folks, you are the niche. 
just the fact that you are showing up as a person from a marginalized community in these spaces where it's not common, that already makes you unique. That already makes people want to start knowing what you're doing and paying attention to you. I know for me, the the fact that both of my businesses are completely tied to my identity as a Latina, it's not an accident. It's just how I needed to show up in order to be my most authentic self. And so giving folks permission to know that there is no such thing as market saturation. You are the unique value proposition of your business just by being you in a space that is not commonly occupied by folks that look like you, I think that's really powerful. And when you start to lean into your identity versus thinking about how you can start a business as the corporate code switched version of yourself, the more it's going to feel natural. You know, it begs an interesting question because I feel like, and maybe this is incorrectly, we focus a lot on financial literacy in these communities, and maybe it's not really literacy at all. Totally financially literate people. It's mentorship that we really need to be looking at. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. There is just, and you can look at the stats, right? When you see that less than 5% of CFPs are people of color, I mean, why would you even think to talk to a CFP unless you know that someone's going to understand the unique aspects of what it is to be from a certain community or thinking about, you know, one of the the things that I struggle with as an entrepreneur is like, I want to be able to retire my parents. But do I want to put that pressure on myself? Because now it's like, I got to take my business to a level that maybe someone from another community doesn't have to financially because they're only worried about supporting themselves. So there's a lot of these conversations that are intricately tied to who we are as people and where we come from and trying to think that we can give blanket advice to folks without taking into account that nuance is why certain people feel like, well, this is obviously not a conversation for me because we're not actually talking about what are the real struggles and the real things that I'm going to face if I decide to take this route. Yeah. And it's it's an interesting thought because I know as a content creator, as a podcaster, I realized that I had a very narrow vision of people to follow or people to listen to because it was my nature to look at people who sounded and looked like me, but that was easy because I was a white male and it was very easy to find a lot of people in the personal finance space who are white men. If I was, for instance, a Latina female, what would it have been like to start looking for me, for people who sounded and looked like me? I probably would have had a harder time as a podcaster. That was bad, that narrow focus, because I had to learn how to broaden my focus to understand people much better. But as a person looking to learn and find mentors, that can be a very good quality to have some of that narrow focus. And I could see how that would be very disquieting as someone going in and looking for financial information and not finding anyone who sounded or looked like me or or dealt with some of the same issues, like you said, some of the family issues or some of the other things that do go along with certain cultures. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about COVID. Two big things that we're talking about all the time, right? We're talking about the COVID pandemic and we're talking about the great resignation. How do you think that this has affected digital entrepreneurship? I think it's been really fantastic because folks needed to be shocked into the idea that just because someone has told you that your career is stable, that's not actually true. I think a lot of us were shocked into reality when we realized that even the most stable careers like nursing, like teachers, you know, these frontline workers, they 
were it, it would always boggles my mind how what we call frontline workers were minimum wage workers who didn't have a work ethic right and <laughs> somehow they became the most important people on planet earth and we needed that perspective to realize that we really don't appreciate the working class we really don't in this country you know provide support systems that can allow folks to weather these types of catastrophic events and so i think people have become way more cognizant of the fact that we have to create our own safety nets. And so I think that is what's pushing a lot of digital entrepreneurship in my community. It's this idea of, am I going to continue to give my time, my energy to an employer who can furlough me because something that's completely out of my control, or I'm, am I going to take back that power and say, I'm never going to put myself in a position where I'm reliant solely on this W-2 paycheck? Not everybody wants to be a full-time entrepreneur, but I think the power of the internet is that it's allowing us to create these secondary income streams that can provide us with additional financial protection. And we we know now that it's pretty much essential at this point for your own peace of mind to not have to worry about you know how you're going to pay your bills just because something that you couldn't even plan for happens. So I'm going to admit this is a reach, but as I listen to your answer... I sometimes wonder whether digital entrepreneurship actually lets corporate America off the hook, right? Because in a sense, if everyone leaves some of these frontline activities, we're not going to have enough people to do all these important things. And we're going to have a bunch of digital entrepreneurs, which could lead to oversaturation. Maybe it doesn't, but I wonder if it actually excuses us from pushing corporate America to actually make the changes it needs to. And I'm not saying I have an easy answer to that question, but part of me also wants to say, look, corporate America, you need to improve. We need to give more work security to people doing these essential and important jobs. And and I wonder if if we're not forced to have that conversation now. Mm, that That's a really interesting train of thought. I The way that I see it is now as someone who is a job creator, I can begin to have an active role in remedying those things that I saw were being done unfairly to workers and that I experienced myself. So as a now someone who has employees, like I pay them a very good wage compared to what I got. And, you know, my first jobs out of school, I was making five fifteen an hour. <laughs> no one in my company is making anywhere close to that. Right. And so when you are in a position of power, you can then start to fix things in a way that we just can't afford for the government or corporate America to start caring. And I think especially as a Latina, knowing what the wage gap is and knowing that we're getting paid about 55 cents to every white man's dollar, I cannot afford to wait. My community cannot afford to wait for the government. According to statistics I've read, it's going to take 136 years for us to bridge the wage gap between women and men. And so I don't know about you, but I can't afford to wait. I think most of us cannot afford to wait And so I think once we have the position or once our companies have gone to the place where now we can start hiring, that's how we start to see the real change. We need more people from other diverse communities in those boardrooms. We need folks who are running diverse companies that take into account, you know, all of the the issues and that start to actually fix those issues from the from within, if you will. Is there any rehabbing corporate America or is it just time to cut bait and move on? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I like to say there's always hope. And I think 
what I'm seeing is there's more focus on getting that diversity at the top and getting folks in the C-suites who have not traditionally been considered for these roles. But I think entrepreneurship is is something that now that it's easier to access, and I say this in quotes than ever, it's folks are really seriously entertaining this fact that it's not just a lofty goal that folks are actually doing this, that it is an actual career choice. And it's not just about, you know, going to college and getting a job and getting a pension, like that's not the only option. And so the fact that folks just even know that I think is really powerful. And I think it's going to force change. That's my hope. You mentioned both the gender pay gap, and in this case, the pay gap between Latinx and non-Latinx workers. Clearly, there's a systemic problem, right? This is not a personal problem, right? It's not not one person is doing something right or doing something wrong. Talk about the need for systemic change, because one thing I've noticed in our community is there's definitely this feeling of, I can control me. But do we also need to be thinking about how to systemically change what's happening in the country today? And and can we do both? Absolutely. I think it's important for us to not fall victim to the bootstrap narrative and think that the only reason why certain communities are the way they are is because they're just not working hard enough. I know I can speak for myself when I say some of the hardest working people I know are from marginalized communities. And it's because they typically are not given the same access to choices and careers and even credit lines and capital and all the things that give folks different amounts of privilege in this, in this capitalist system. So it's important that we don't think that that's the only reason why things exist. Now, do I believe that we have power to exercise like individual power to, you know, do things that other people in our community haven't done? Yes, absolutely. I think I'm an example of that, of just questioning the status quo of what we've been told. I think that's a powerful place to start, just questioning the narratives that you've been told, unpacking your money story and understanding, why do you feel about money the way that you do? Did you come from a household where there wasn't a lot of abundance, where there wasn't talk about investing, where there wasn't any entrepreneurs? If that's the case, then you're going to have to learn a new set of skills and a new set of practices with your mindset that are going to allow you to then, you know, start taking action on these things that you're curious about. But I think it's also important for us to know that the systemic change won't happen if we're not active participants. And I think one of the powerful things that I see coming from a new generation of women and and women of color who are gaining financial independence, who are becoming independently wealthy, is the ability to then put that capital to work behind candidates who care about the causes that you care about, behind organizations that advocate for the things that you want. In this society that we live in, in in capitalism, money is equivalent to power. And so it's intricately tied. If you want to have impact, you have to have the financial capacity to support the causes and the people and the endeavors that will make those long-lasting changes. So I want to pivot for the last part of the show to go back to the Janice who just lost her job. And let's think about some things that we can do right now, especially for those people who are finding themselves lost and trying to figure out how to move forward. First and foremost, you went from losing your job to having a six-figure online digital business. That's quite a journey. Tell me, was there anything that surprised you on the way? Any big lesson that you didn't see coming that ended up being really important? 
I think it's, it's a couple. I, I the, if I have to break them down to the top two, it would be just because it's not happening quickly. Doesn't mean it's going, it's not going to happen. And I think folks don't give themselves enough time to actually see through what their actual goal is. If I had married myself to this idea that if I don't make six figures in my blog in a year, then it's a failure, then I never would have given myself enough of that runway to actually create what is now the reality. So have some patience. I mean, that's lesson number one. And number two, don't get tied to the idea that the thing that you do now has to be the thing that you do forever. I don't know why, but so many of us are programmed to think that we have to have it all figured out by the time we're 18 or 22 or 25 or 30. And if we haven't gotten it figured out by then, then somehow we have failed. And I invite you to entertain the idea that life in itself is an educational process in discovering what you're meant to do and who you're meant to be. So let's get rid of the arbitrary markers that we put on life as to what you should have accomplished by a certain age. Because I feel like now at 37, I am just scratching the surface of what I want my life to look like. And so, you know, just get married to the idea that it's a journey. They say that a thousand mile journey starts with the first step. And I found that people struggling this with these issues often get stuck trying to take that initial step forward or step in. What's a good way to start, especially if you realize there's a problem, you want to take control, you, you buy into this idea of financial freedom. What's the first thing to do? Yeah. So if you've already identified that there's something that you want to try, I know this sounds really silly and kind of, you know, like the most basic advice I can give you, but you have to try it. You have to let go of some guarantee of success. I think that's the thing that stops people more than anything. They want to know the the final outcome of what's going to happen before they take a single step. But that's the thing. You get into an endless loop where you never actually figure out what's possible because you don't begin. So giving yourself permission to just start, just start showing up, post that first blog, create that first podcast episode, launch your social media, do whatever it is, put do the first thing that you can do, then do the next thing and just keep going. Obviously, if people want to learn or know more, they can go to the Yo Quiero Dinero podcast or platform. But are there some other kind of good resources for new entrepreneurs or new side hustlers where they can kind of start getting some ideas and dipping their toe in the water? Yeah. So I think it's important to do research into who is doing what you actually already want to do. So doing that market research and learning about what have folks done in the field that you're interested in so that you can start kind of getting an idea of what is possible for you. And then the, the most powerful thing you can do is just start talking to people, start meeting folks, whether that is virtually, whether that is an in-person events, start talking to people about what you're doing. It's really powerful once you actually start speaking your goals into existence and you start taking action behind them, what can actually be possible. But I would just start by, you know, start putting yourself out there. Well, Janice, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. You know, we talk about ourselves, both you and I as accidental entrepreneurs, but after having this conversation, I kind of wonder whether it was accidental at all in a sense 
we became entrepreneurs when our needs and our passions became so great that they overtook our fear of taking that first step. And so hopefully this conversation helps people out there start considering that first step and maybe diving in. I wanted to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where people can find you. Tell me what is going on with the Yokio Dinero platform. What's happening now? So my latest announcement is that I am writing a book. Yeah, I'm so excited about this. It's again, leaning into what I've seen in this whole process of launching this podcast and, and the brand is just, there's a lack of representation in written media too. You know, what, who's, who's the Susie Orman of the Latina community? That's what we need to create. We need to start having folks who look like us talking about money and, and creating these tools that we can pass on generation to generation. So that's going to be my next big project is writing a personal finance book for, for my community. And I am all over the internet. Yo quiero dinero. And my podcast can be found wherever you listen to Doc G's podcast. (laughs) You asked who is the Latinx version of Susie Orman in personal finance. And I would say Janice Torres Rodriguez (laughs) apparently is. This has been this has been the Earn and Invest podcast on behalf of myself, Doc G. I'd like to thank Janice Torres Rodriguez. That's a wrap. Awesome. As you know, I continue the audio going for just a few minutes for the after show. Was there anything we didn't talk about? Anything about your brand or anything you wanted to touch upon we didn't? No, I think that was great. I think that was nice, comprehensive, uh, really good discussion. Yeah, I, I, I am a huge fan of entrepreneurship. Um, I, I think like you felt like I kind of fell into it before I emotionally came to that idea that that was what I was going to do. But I've also had lots and lots of failures, like, and I, I feel that, like, yeah, my most successful entrepreneurship was my medical practice. The mm. other ones have had, had, you know, some success here and there. That happened to be enough, right? Yeah. Because I, <laughs> you know, I made enough money and I learned how to invest and I, I bought some real estate. So I was able to do lots of things that helped. Um, mm-hmm. But I think people don't always realize how much of a process it is. And yeah. often the superstars we see on the internet, we are seeing the end of a process. Yeah. And sometimes we don't take that into consideration when we are at the start of our process. And um, I always love, obviously, when entrepreneurs talk about their failures, because I think um, it's such an iterative process, right? And you've got to fail. Most people, not everybody, some people succeed right away, but most of us have to <laughs> fail a number of times before we hit on the right idea or platform or solution that works. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think most of that the frustration from new entrepreneurs comes from the fact that they are comparing, you know, someone's year 10 to their day one. And it's just like, and it's crushing, you you know, you have to put things in perspective. Yeah. Tell me about being a podcaster. You love it or not love it? (laughs) No, I absolutely love it. It, it, This is again, one of those things that I started off doing this that if I never make a dollar doing this, like I will be perfectly happy. And it's just because I knew how important these conversations were. I didn't actually know what the impact was going to be, but I couldn't keep myself from not showing up. And so 
it's been a really, it's been the best tool for networking too. Just meeting the most interesting people in the world. Folks love to talk to you when you have a podcast in a way that like, if you send them a cold email, they're just like, they'll ignore you, but they'll never ignore an invite to a podcast. It's amazing. It's a nice way to celebrate people. Um, Yeah. I've found that having a podcast gives you an excuse to cast a wide net and write and talk to people. Otherwise you wouldn't. Um, And certainly the emotional and knowledge returns have been, you know, have dwarfed any, any money. And I think always will, although you certainly can definitely make money with those emotional and knowledge returns you get. I I don't have as much of an impetus to just because of where I am in life right now, but, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah, it's a cool thing. And, and yeah, I feel like that too. I, I think podcasting is one of the coolest, coolest things. And Absolutely. I, just, I, I adore it. I think it's, yeah. it's fantastic. And it gives me a chance to have people like you on and pick your brain and just <laughs> out of nowhere, we don't know each other, right. To sit right. and have a, have what I, <laughs> what I feel is a fantastic conversation. So, yeah, it's awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. Um, where are you in the book writing process? So I actually just got my deal. So very congratulations. Thank we can, you. I, do you want me to, I can cut this off. We don't have to talk about that. Like, oh, no, it's okay. But, yeah, okay. that's fine. So you, are you interested in disclosing who you're going with? So it's with uh, hatchet books. They have awesome. an imprint called balance underground central publishing. Very and cool. So, yeah. Congratulations. That is a big, big deal. Thank you. I'm like, what the hell did I just do? But <laughs> you will, so it, I don't know, you, you'll get all sorts. If you've never written a book before, you're going to get all this sorts person. of advice. Yeah. It's both extremely awesome and extremely hard. But persistence is what gets you through, right? Because being with a big publisher, and if you have a good agent, which you probably do since you have a big publisher, um, they'll provide you support. And the end product usually is much better than what you begin with. Mm -hmm. And so if you lean into that and be like, okay, these people are here to help me. They're here to make what I write better. And as opposed to getting all antsy and worried about, you know, oh, they didn't like the first draft or they want to change this around or they don't like the title because you're going to get all that kind of input more like, oh, they're going to take what I have from good and make it awesome. That's uh, that if you can look at it, I think that way, it turns out to be a, a really good process. Yeah, that that's how I'm approaching. And I'm really just like, I'm the student, teach me what I need to know to make this a success. <laughs> and you will, of course, be welcome to come back once that book is at the place. Oh, thank you to, so much. To talk about it, because that's one of my favorite things to do, so. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate background, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 